Welcome to the Codcast. I'm Bruce Mole from Commonwealth Magazine, and my guest today is Nicholas Dagan Bloom, a professor of urban policy and planning at Hunter College in New York City. He is also the author of a new book called The Great American Transit Disaster, a history of public transit development in the United States with a close look at Boston among a bunch of other cities. Professor, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So talk a little about about this American transit disaster. I'm sure most of our listeners are thinking of a very modern day current disaster, but (laughs) what do you talk about in this book? Well, I mean, the the real, the, the true disaster, I suppose, in the longer picture, right, is that America goes from being if not the world's leader, certainly one of the leaders in mass transportation, let's say in 1900, to really being just in a terrible situation today, where in most regions, uh, transit riding is a very small percentage of um, total miles traveled. And it's that, I mean, that is, to me, that's just a, a complete total disaster to lose so much of your you know, if we never had it, that would be one thing, but to have lost so much of that capacity. And in fact, I think it was what makes it even more, um, you know, sad is that um, there were ways to preserve so much more of that capacity. And these, uh, talk a little bit about the, I think most most people aren't familiar with the history of public transit. How how did it get started? And, and uh, yeah. it started out as private transit in right. a lot of ways, right? Right. And, you know, the, 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 the story is very interesting, and I do have some sections on that in the book. Um, you have private companies who basically saw an opportunity to uh, get urbanites out of the city to land, very often that the, their investors had um, relationships with in terms of owning. So you had this boom in transit in the 19th century, particularly the late 19th century and early 20th centuries. The sector was very, I would say it was very techy in a sense, right? That it was always looking for the new, you know, best way to kind of get people further out. So you have a transition very quickly from horse-drawn streetcars uh, to cable cars and then electric streetcars, uh, elevated and rapid lines. You really had this sort of very pioneering sector, uh, which basically built a, a lot of, tra- most all the transit in the US uh, built with private capital. Now there were some exceptions like Boston, New York and so forth where there was state aid. Um, but what's fascinating about the American story is that we built this incredible transportation network, this, this mass transportation network um, on a private sector basis. And talk a little bit about Boston because that's where most of our listeners are. What? Yeah. How, how are we different here? Well, I mean, for one thing that in the late 19th century, already the, the city and state become involved in developing rapid transit, right? Because even though there were private investors like Henry Whitney and others, right, who uh, basically developed streetcar lines and consolidated them and so forth, there clearly was a need for um, another level of transit uh, because of the geographical, particularly the, the geography of Boston with the narrow streets and the water bodies and so forth, the capital requirements were much higher. And so you basically had very early in Boston, which is, I think, different from other states except for New York, San Francisco, uh, and so forth, you had uh, a public-private partnership uh, develop 
to develop a higher quality rapid transit uh, network, which we, you know, the first subway and so forth. Um, and then ultimately the, um, the elevated lines. So, I mean, that sort of sets New York, or I'm sorry, sets Boston off from many other, most other American cities. So um, fast forward a little bit over the years and um, public transit in Boston, in the greater Boston area, um, you know, in, in just my lifetime here, uh, it's gone from something that was a bit erratic and funding went up and down a little bit, but it was fairly reliable. Yeah. Um, and then the pandemic hit and as they might say, the wheels came off the trolleys uh, <laughs> quite a bit here uh, and it just never seems to end. Um, is well, that phenomenon unique to Boston or widespread? I will say this, um, in looking at the chapters I have in Boston, I look back at them in the book and so forth. I definitely think episodic financial collapse is, and also uh, managerial issues are kind of part of the Boston story. Uh, going back, let's say 1918, when you have the trusteeship created, the original uh, MTA in the 1940s, right? The MBTA in the 60s, you know, uh, early, you know, financial reorganization in the early 70s, you know, uh, future fair, it's like future funding systems. It's, if you really look at it, right, it's been a series of like, responses to crisis. And it, I think what stands out for me in Boston's history is that in each case, you see a kind of deeper engagement, right, of state government, uh, some kind of funding that can basically establish, reestablish some kind of equilibrium, right? And I think that's an important difference from most American cities, which is that, you know, most American cities, these kinds of financial crises were met with massive cuts loss of permanent transit infrastructure like streetcars, uh, elevated lines, so forth. Um, and um, that basically led to a complete and total bottoming out. I think in the kind of where you're obviously in Boston in one of the troughs of <laughs> one of those moments, right? Of financial and managerial issues, right? Um, which makes it a little hard to see where things go. And you know there is a compounding problem, which is that as in the post-war years of like the late 40s and early 50, uh, into the 50s, you also have um, financial managerial issues which are compounded by massive and steep ridership losses. Uh, so you know you put those together, they almost seem insurmountable. But I would say have hope, Bruce, uh, because this is something Boston has gotten through before. Um, and that was in the post-war years, massive losses, you know, half the ridership gone, uh, major financial issues, managerial issues, and so forth. And that led to, you know, the creation of the MP MBTA, right, in the early 60s. And that helped stabilize things at least for a few years. And the difference is that if you, if as in Boston region, if you take those steps, then you have a chance of rebuilding. Right, it's not for sure that you'll get out of this trough. Obviously, right? That's you know, there's some larger sectoral, like you know, work from home and other issues like that. Right? That I think are are even compounded in a different way. But but you but by finding those subsidies, by stabilizing a system in its worst crisis, you know, that's how you rebuild transit. And it's interesting, we had a podcast last week with a congressman from Massachusetts mm -hmm. who articulated quite a broad vision for yeah. 
transit in Massachusetts with connecting two stub end terminals, the North and South Station. Yes, I, I saw that. Yeah. So it, and he was talking about uh, projects that would involve many billions of dollars mm -hmm. to accomplish. But he has that vision. And at the same time, I wanted to bring the conversation a little bit around to our mayor has been a, one of the leading advocates of making transit free. Um, she is having the city pay for three bus routes mm -hmm. to be fare free for um, it's going to be a couple years. And she wants to evaluate that. But on this podcast, she actually broached the idea a couple of years ago of making the whole system free uh, mm -hmm. because we spend a lot of money gathering the the uh, we spend a lot of money gathering the money that's paid in fares, and uh, she thought it might make more sense to just make it free and you know push that public sector that you've been talking about more into the into the system. Now you've raised some concerns about free. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, in fact, we're publishing a piece of yours that that raises this issue. What what's yeah. your concern about that? So, the the issue with uh, free fares is um, I think it's it's very um, uh, politically attractive in a sense, but there there are some concerns. I mean, one is is there a long term strategy for making up? Uh, these losses, even though Fairbox is a relatively small proportion in Boston of um, total operating revenues, it's still a portion of it. If you take um, that portion away and also future fare increases off the table, uh, that does create a new kind of financial calculus that <laughs> the MBTA will have to reckon with. And if it isn't made up by a very stable right? Not a, an appropriated, annual appropriated kind of thing that is subject to political wills. If it doesn't have a, um, um, a line that is stable in terms of subsidy, then that could just, that is likely to become a, a challenge in terms of red ink in the future. I also think that like the fair fares model, you know, that is um, uh, free or reduced cost for um, uh, riders uh, based on income is a more promising uh, component. And I think for this, this reason, I think that there is in American society, and we can't get away from that, there are certain kinds of services which have traditionally, like transit, had some kind of payment component. And I think that's an has been an important part of Kind of the political justification for actually big subsidies in like the Boston area, or certainly um, the preservation and, and enhancement of service. And I think that when we look at services which are free um, in the United States, that's not always like the greatest model, right, for something that we want to serve lots of people, right, in the US. I spent a lot of time studying public housing. Uh, which has extraordinarily low, it does have income graded rents, but extremely low rents. Um, and, you know, when you get into free services, very often, people often cite like libraries or education, well, that's true. But there are, you know, there are a lot of services which are so called free, which I don't think have a lot of political support beyond the people who benefit from those services. So I think there's a political calculus that We've been charging fares for you know over a century of some kind, <laughs> uh, 
And if you take that out, I think there's some political liability there. So uh, the debate also gets a little deeper here in some ways because the mayor and other proponents of free sort of say, um, and again, some say free on the buses and right. say free on everything. But yeah. let's just take the buses because that's perhaps the most popular idea here is so when people are getting on the bus right now, they have to go to, yeah. to the front, tap their card or put in the money and everybody slowly gets on and there's more dwell time, as they sure. call it, waiting for the people to board and, and the bus to take off. By making it free, you throw open the doors, everybody gets on and you go quicker. And and her her test has shown that that is, is indeed true. It, it more, there, there may be more people and maybe more crowded, sometimes, but it's faster boarding. And so the process or the bus ride itself mm. improves somewhat. But again, well, but Bruce, it can, you, in this case, there are, there's technology. I know in San Francisco, they use, uh, you can scan, you can have scanners in the back for people to use passes. You can have prepayment is pretty typical. Uh, like in New York, we have a lot of uh, prepaid lines where you pay off the bus and then you do occasional checks throughout Europe and many other places. Um, they do, you know, they have basically, you know, um, teams that occasionally check and things like that. So I would say that's kind of like a technical issue that doesn't necessarily undermine it. <laughs> they undermine that or, or sort of like that, that can be resolved through, I think, better tech use of technology today. Um, and it doesn't still resolve, I think, the real serious concerns like you have already these agencies are in a financial hole, right? And so now they need to ask for on an annual basis, right? They're going to have to ask for or, you know, a couple of years, they're going to have to ask both to make up the deficits they already have because of lost ridership, increasing costs and things like that, but also for free fares. And I do think there's a bit more of a political lift there. But, you know, I could be wrong. I mean, Boston, you know, city of Boston's politics are different. I think regionally it may not play as well. Well, to be fair, also, I think, uh, I think you're right about that. But right at this juncture in time, we're putting in one of those systems that you can just sort yeah. of tap it. But of course, it's way overdue and it's yeah. way over budget. So people are going, why are we spending a billion dollars on this system to collect, you know, at least initially a relatively small amount of money? <laughs> I'm but not I, here to defend uh, a consult, <laughs> uh, consultancy fees or um, like a contract that doesn't work that well. But in a, in a world where things work in a normal way, there are technical solutions like sure. to, to that problem. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm sort of curious, um, you, you've sort of surveyed a bit of, around the country of this yeah. free fair idea. Um, and I think you mentioned in your article that can is it Kansas City has Kansas City, yeah. but they, and and they've they've had it for some time, but yeah. it's in trouble right now, right? Right. Well, I mean, there's always going to be the the financial issue of funding it, but even more to the point, I think that that you know, a city like Kansas City has very a very limited transit network, right? So the question is, if if you're not going to, if you're going to sign away, right, future revenue uh, growth and so forth, then arguably any kind of growth in revenue or capital development has to be paid by someone else, right? And that's the Kansas City issue, which is that 
it's free for a very limited system. A little downtown streetcar and a few bus rides, that's what gets you free. Now, it's a very different thing to talk about free in Boston or free in New York, or even free in Chicago, right? Which gets you access. I know there's problems in Boston. We'll say it's not great, but, but go to Kansas City, go to so many American cities. Free has a very different meaning. And that we're talking about like, just like a remnant of trans, like a, a, yeah. a smell of transit, you know, like it's a fume, you know, like it's so little that to say it's free is both a, you know, it's like nothing, right? It's it's basically a, you know, it's an afterthought. So one is the total cost of making such a system free is relatively low. Um, and it doesn't really impact things as much because it's already a very small uh, system. So, you know, I, I think that's, you know, in DC, they're already arguing about whether the city government can afford, right, to pay for, you know, this free fare idea, right? And I think that, by the way, I mean, city governments are headed into major, like I'm sure Boston too, you have a high vacancy rate in your downtown real estate, right? Record rates, right? You, people are a little, things are a little flush right now, right, in city budgets, Right. And so there's a lot of interest in these ideas because we're not really facing what it's going to look like once all the COVID money runs out. Once uh, you have the downtown reassessments, right, that's going to be, you know, that is, and then the people are going to start questioning whether there should be free rides. I guarantee you that's already, you know, it's happening in DC a bit. And I think that. You know, there, there is there's a very attractive short-term political component of it, but I think that long-term, I don't really see cities as doing it. I'm skeptical that state governments, because of the regional and statewide politics, will want to support it, free rides. Long, it just, I mean, I think it's, it's a kind of thing that plays very well, you know, in cities um, right now, but I think when we get out of you know, the, and we, and we sort of see the financial reality of city budgets, of state budgets, and also the political questions, right, about this. Um, I think it will be hard to sustain long-term. I just think it's a distraction. I, can I just say that too, Bruce? I mean, I think that what we really should be looking at, right? I mean, it's fine to, you know, talk about this, but one, you can make sure that people who have less money, right, can ride for low cost or free, like in Boston, like young people, right? in their you know, 18 to 25, right? If they're in certain programs, they can ride for free. And I think that's politically very you know, sellable, right? Those who really can't afford can, can ride at low cost or no cost. I think that's very politically good. I think that um, you know, the emphasis should be on how do we build better systems that will attract, will be good for low-income people, that will be better in terms of accessing them jobs you know, in a regional basis, there's plenty of evidence that riders really want great transit, um, that that's actually their priority over cost up to a certain point, right? That what they want is access to more of a region. How do you do that? Do you do that with a free fare model? No, I mean, you do that with a very deep subsidies from state, federal, and local government, potentially, although local has been very weak across time, but certainly state and federal governments. And, you know, you and, and part of that will be a fair component, you know, of that kind of quality regional service. Tell me a little bit about New York, um, New York City. The, yeah. the you we hear and read about uh, ridership. It's certainly not back to where it was pre-COVID, but it's it's, it's, getting, it's, it's getting there. Yeah. It's getting there. 
something we look at longingly and sort of uh-huh. we've got a lot of problems going on. But <laughs> what is is New York having this debate at all? Is is there is there's push for right now? There's a proposal which the mayor has actually supported for. Uh, I think it's two bus lines per borough uh, to be free. Um, but of course, most of those people will probably end up transferring into the subway system. So we'll ultimately pay. So you're basically making your feeder bus uh, free, but that has not yet been funded or approved. So we'll see you know, how politically uh, good that works, how well that works out over time. Um, and is so- New York in financially good shape relatively or? Uh, <laughs> I mean, our rest- budget is like, I think, what is it? The city's budget is larger than Portugal's, like, you know, or something like that. It's like over a hundred billion dollars. I mean, so, on the, it's the worst of times is the best of times. I mean, the, the problems that, okay, so New York has a number of strengths and weaknesses, I guess, compared to Boston is, you know, one is um, the, reass- again, we haven't had the kind of reassessment of commercial property in the center uh, yet. So we'll see how that goes. So right now it's pretty flush and sales tax are good. And so various taxes are good. So that, that uh, and, and income tax have been very good. Um, so yes, it's, it's looking pretty good right now, but all the estimates say that in the next few years, it's going to become much more grim. But the other thing is as in Boston, um, you know, the MTA is a state agency. So um, it is benefiting, well, we'll see, there are proposals to more deeply subsidize MTA. MTA, on the other hand, is facing, I'm like MBTA, is facing enormous potential deficits, like crippling ones. And if the state does not step up, right, we, it will lead to major service cuts and probably ridership losses in that way. So we are on an edge, much like Boston. So the, the financial state of the city is fine, but transit, because of the loss of, let's say, about 30% of ridership, um, New York had a higher um, fare box collection rate than Boston um, at, before the pandemic, but that has sunk significantly. So there's major loss of um, revenue from riders. There are also just the inflationary costs and spirals of every agency that everyone's facing in terms of labor, um, cost of doing everything. So the MTA is arguably has major uh, challenges ahead. And so right now it's being debated in Albany, the future of the MTA has more to do with what happens in Albany than what happens in City Hall, that makes Mm. sense. Because City Hall is resistant. There have been calls for city government to put more money up, but there has been resistance to that. And again, that's why I'm skeptical that free fair models that rely on city funding have a real future. Because I look at the history of transit and in general, city municipal funding for transit with the exception of San Francisco and a little bit of New York, but even there it's been hard, has not been a solid way to basically um, uh, fund transit. I mean, that's why you have the creation of the MTA in the 1960s in New York is that the city was running transit, but they weren't providing the funds to maintain it at all. And um, so then the state steps in in that period. Um, but the other thing we have, I think, is a little different is we have people like Jamie Dimon, right, who has said that going back to work is a priority in person. And from what I understand, it's a little different in Boston. We have many more of these large financial services corporations, which have said that being in person is a big deal. Also, the city government has made it a priority to their, <laughs> not necessarily from an employment, but it's been hard to get employees, but they've said they, they brought their employees back 
right? There has been much more of that push for in-person in New York. And I think that I've watched it because I've been going in two years and teaching at, at Hunter. And we went back in person too, very early uh, compared to some places, I guess. And, you know, that, that puts people back on transit. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But I, I want to go back to something you said okay. earlier uh, as someone who looks at the long history of, of transit agencies. You, you sort of had a little bit of optimism that places yeah. like Boston go up, they go down, they go up, they go down. And we're clearly at a down spot right now, both, as you said, managerial and financials coming, uh, yeah. financial problems. But, but is it, but in a city like Boston, city like New York, transit is pretty important because it's very difficult to get around <laughs> yeah, yeah. car. So you sort of feel in the long run, I, that's what I'm just sort of putting yeah. in the long run, we'll figure it out is what you're, you're thinking? You're well, I think, yeah, I think here's, I think Boston has a number of, re well, there are no reasons why Boston will probably have a transit rebound long-term. One is if you do the rezoning in the region, uh, if these, and I know already you have the state level MBTA rezoning, if there is significant rezoning in the Boston region that increases the density of housing, um, also if you eliminate things like parking minimums, uh, if these kinds of effort, and you continue just to have development, um, it already, you know, driving in Boston is awful. I lived in Boston for a number of years, so I know, um, and it's, it's just a hard go. So I think the aggravation factor has always been very important in driving people to transit and whatever happens to downtown, right? However, it changes, it could become a biotech hub or things like that. Those, that problem of concentration is the opportunity for transit really to serve people. And I think you also have a number of things. You have all these colleges and universities, many of which are linked to transit. I know MIT has a pretty aggressive program of uh, transit. I believe it's at free rides or free, yes. free transit for employees. I think other colleges could do that. You know, there's some other ones that could do not just, you know, giving the tax breaks and things like that, but could provide free transit. You have the students, you have the density around transit. So I think, you know, I think that is positive, but it's not going to be, you know, it's going to be long-term. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, I think that maybe my book, maybe it'll help for Boston, at least on this is that, you know, they're, there's often this kind of like shiny, maybe that's where I, I object to the free fair things. I think that there's a kind of shiny object component of transit very often of like the newest cars, you know, the, the newest equipment, it's going to be electrified. It's going to, you know, like all these things. It's like, well, you know, what is the long-term, right? What makes a difference in transit? And the, for me, the long-term is, is there a regional statewide commitment to supporting transit at its lowest points? Because if you support it then, right, then it has a chance, then that service remains. And, and you know, it's all about service, right, Bruce? If, if somebody knows that that streetcar is still going to be running outside their house, right, they, they, or, or, or their apartment, right, then they can rent that apartment knowing there's going to be something there, right, yeah. or that, that, that express line. But if that thing either there's almost no service or it's just disappears, right? Or that bus line, right? goes away, then you're going to probably in America, so, you know, you're going to lose that person, maybe to walking, but biking or also to, um, to the car, 
right? And they'll put up with the aggravation because writers are sensitive to those things. And so I think what I hope that people take for Boston, you know, what, what saves transit is not the shiny object, right? It's the let's save it, let's keep it running. It's gonna look empty for a while. That's what they had, you know, like, and let's be, let's be sort of strategic, right? About, you know, maintaining it and seeing what happens after the crisis, right? Because it could turn out like that we really need it. Like maybe we're gonna really actually get serious about climate change. So maybe, you know, like we're gonna put a gas tax on things really high or, you know, I mean, there, that's, you know, that is likely to happen, right? You know, yep. there, are, there, are, there are things that will change. So I don't know if that helps. That helps very much. Um, Nicholas Dagan-Bloom, thank you so much. This was a great delight to talk to you today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Bruce. And to our listeners, we'll see you again next week. Thank you.